This is Josh Korda of Dharma Punks, New York. My Buddhist pastoral work is supported by donations only. If you'd like to help, Venmo Dharma Punks NYC or use the PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. I hope you enjoy this podcast and thanks for your support. And I am in recovery from COVID, which happened in end of January, early this month, which I would not recommend as the easiest way to go about getting antibodies, but never do things the easy way sometime, it seems, in life. We have found ourselves in February, which is the armpit of the year in New York, freezing, snow, gray. And tonight's talk is going to be on the self, perspectives on the self, the true self, why is it important? How do we get a grasp or a handle on it from different perspectives? At first, I'm not going to simplify it. I'm going to problematize it by trying to present some different perspectives on the core self and um, so that you all have the opportunity to decide which perspective feels uh, most appropriate. I'll present at the end a take on the core self that I believe is useful in my work, uh, which is essentially I'm a Buddhist psychotherapist, Buddhist spiritual counselor, whatever you want to call me, Buddhist pastor. So uh, let's dive right in. One of the Buddha's most profound teachings, known as the Anatta Lakana, was one of his earliest teachings, and it's a lesson where it said that many people who were in attendance became immediately enlightened by his insights. And in this teaching, he profoundly distanced himself from the spiritual traditions of his time by basically proclaiming his path as to be one that did not enshrine or elevate a core self as endemic or central to Buddha's practice. In the Anatalakana Sutta, the Buddha says that if you closely in meditation observe the parade of body sensations, feelings, moods, thoughts, and levels of consciousness, then you'll note that all of those factors are changing constantly and that we cannot, under close examination, find any stable element that could possibly provide us with a true, lasting core identity or underlying self or sense of me. Now, the Buddha is not saying that a self doesn't exist. He's simply saying that though all the possible components that one could point to, to providing us with a sense of self or identity are constantly changing. And of course, if we observe our thoughts or our feelings or our moods or our body sensations or just the, how conscious and alert we are, then of course we do see that these things are constantly in flux. Furthermore, the Buddha goes on to say in suttas that it's a f this fixation with self that causes suffering. There's a wonderful sutta called the Leash Sutta where the Buddha says that just as a dog tied by a leash keeps running around a post over and over again, it's like someone who is constantly trying to figure out what their core self is. They're leashed to this belief that there's something in them that is lasting, true, that we can point to that creates a sense of me or a sense of identity. And that this is a constraint in many of his teachings. It took the Western world some 2,200 years after the Buddha, who was alive some 2,500 years ago. It was in 17th 
38, 39, I don't remember the exact year, where finally a Western philosopher named David Hume, with his bundle therapy, bundle theory, not therapy, with Hume's bundle theory, proposed the exact same observation that uh, all of us are collections of basic perceptions, moods, feelings. And if you observe closely, Hume noted, they rapidly change, that we are all internally in a state of flux and movement, and that there is no single lasting, constant, reliable internal substance or property that could provide us with a true self or identity. And so for both Hume and for the Buddha, when we spend a lot of our lives fixated on trying to define ourselves or come up with a story about ourselves, we are then essentially undertaking a task that is fruitless in some way, because we're pointing at something that's moving and in flux and trying to define it. And that's why <clears throat> our, so many of our attempts to define and express ourselves or our core needs very often are fruitless because our needs and our core feelings are constantly in a state of flux as well. Now, all would be very cut and dried if we just ended the talk there, but it actually grows far more complex than that, because actually, while the Buddha said that having uh, the belief in a core lasting self is fruitless, something that we are enslaved by, that causes suffering just in trying to figure out what it is, but then... And other suttas, the Buddha says that it's worth knowing ourself. And in one sutta, he is confronted by some people who are chasing after a thief who's stolen their goods. And the Buddha said, it would be far more worthwhile for you to spend time searching for yourself rather than for any thief. Well, that's quite curious. Um it seems to be that the Buddha himself is pointing to that at any given moment, we have a transitory sense of self, but not one that lasts, not one that's concrete, not one that uh, essentially is reliable or consistent over the years. So let's put that aside for a moment and look at some contemporary theories of of clinical psychology. Some of the great psychologists of the 20th century, uh, I'm going to just mention a few, the list goes on and would stretch my background in psychology to limit just to list all of the psychologists like Carl Rogers, Otto Kernberg, Fairburn, Heinz Coat the great D.W. Winnicott and James Masterson, Naomi Klein, so many of the great psychologists of the 20th century believe that we have essentially two selves, one which we could refer to as a false self, wherein the young child constructs a sense of behaviors to please the mother and father, to get needs met. And this is a performance. And that the child also has a true self, which are all of the natural impulses, including those impulses that are hidden from view because caregivers, parents are not capable of tolerating certain behaviors in the child. So very often children learn that either anger or frustration or sadness or loneliness or boredom or disgust or natural human emotions are unacceptable to their parents. And so it creates a divide, a false self where we perform and act in whatever way 
gets our needs met, and then a true self, which is very often hidden, concealed, and over time repressed so that we're not even aware of what some of the elements, the compartmentalized elements of our true self. Now, according to Rogers <coughs> and others, the more there's a this, the more there's a huge difference between our actual, true, authentic impulses and the false self we present to the world, that's where anxiety comes in. The greater the difference between the, the, the versions of self that we present to others, the, the social mask we put on versus the concealed, immediate, automatic impulses that are very often concealed, the greater the difference, the greater the anxiety, then we can suffer from lack of resilience in life, the less perseverance we have to confront difficulties in our life. For uh, the great Heinz Kohut, if we have a very damaged sense of self, wounded by too many abandonments, that's what leads to narcissism. Narcissism for Kohat that protect this very fragile, damaged sense of self that is very wounded. And so the narcissist constructs this false identity that is completely inauthentic of narcissistic supplies constantly seeking attention. Now, so for these famous psychologists, Western, there's a real need to, in therapy, uncover the underlying, not necessarily socialized, entirely natural core impulses. And for these uh, famous psychologists, this, these uh, often compartmentalized, suppressed, repressed, often unknown qualities are the absolute goldmine in the therapeutic encounter. And it's in getting to know this underlying true self that we experience some form of liberation from neurosis. Neurosis being the byproduct of repressing our true self. However, that's not the entirety of the story, for there are many Buddhist psychologists, such as Caroline Brazier, Mark Epstein, and so forth, that view liberation as the exact opposite. For them, any self-belief, fixation on identity, causes, as the Buddha said, suffering, and that it's only when we give up on this neurotic need to constantly identify any underlying attribute of self that we become <clears throat> free to explore any impulse as it arises without becoming fetishistic about this is my true self or not. So for them, the whole labeling of impulses as my true self is problematic. Now, many spiritual traditions believe that finding a core underlying self, like the Western psychologists I previously listed, is very important. Hinduism, for example, asserts that behind all identity stories and thoughts, there's a transcendent, transcultural core identity that is transpersonal. But the Buddha rejected this. And the Buddha said that to have any belief in a transcendent, transpersonal self is simply a kicking the can down the road, as it were, because such individuals, he said, would become filled with grief at the death of a tree or a squirrel or any animal if we all had this transpersonal self that was in some way interconnected. Many of us, when push comes to shove, fall into the old sort of, the self must be what Descartes said. It must be the inner chatter, the thinking faculty of the mind. 
And in which case they all point to this idea that the part of the mind that provides a verbal stream of thought must be that which is constitutive of the core self. Now, this is very problematic for a number of reasons. The Buddha once said, if you observe your thoughts, you find that they're inconsistent and thoughts are capable of arguing, our thoughts are capable of arguing with each other. So how could they possibly can be can present a core self when they're constantly at war. Our, our own thinking can present completely different incompatible views from one moment to the next. It would be amazing to think that inner thought is constitutive of our core self. Believe it or not, we can think at a rate of 4,000 words uh, per minute. That's an astonishing, huge number. It's the equivalent, some say, of in our minds writing two books a day with the amount of thoughts that we have in the course of a day. Inner chatter, as it were, can be very useful, can help us make plans and stick to them, prepare for contingencies, realize goals, evaluate mistakes, organize our internal experience, in words that other people can understand. So I can report to you that I feel lonely or tired or frustrated and give you examples of what kind of thoughts and feelings I'm having and you might be able to empathize. On the other hand, inner chatter can be just as damaging and just as unhelpful as it can be helpful. Chatter can take the form of inane speeches about what's wrong with the world that have absolutely nothing to do with real problems. It can be unsparing in its self-criticism. Inner chatter can be nothing but a compulsive rehashing of past slights and uh, insults. Inner thoughts can be tripped up by endless rumination about abandonments, or it can be also filled with catastrophizing where we envision all the negative outcomes that could happen to us in the future. In fact, um, when we look at inner chatter, as Freud did, Freud showed that it played a very small role in human actual behavior or choices. Freud was the first that showed that the unconscious, the suppressed, repressed, unknown realm of pre-conscious processes of the brain are far more influential in our behavior and our actions than conscious thought or inner chatter in our mind. And today we see in contemporary neuropsychology in the work of Pansep, Damasio, Ledoux, et al., that the autobiographical self, the stories we tell about ourselves, have the least influence in our behavior and our actions. They argue that we have a fluid embodied self, which is activations of, for example, the temporal parietal junction, and we have an emotional interpersonal self of the dorsal uh, medial and the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and so forth. So that there are unconscious regions of the brain that are completely, have nothing to do with human thought that are far more influential in the choices we make. Damasio especially shows in his clinical studies that when we make decisions in our life, We don't make them by rationally thinking them through. In fact, that leads to virtually no decisions being made. We actually go in accordance with the way we feel. How do we feel when we think about a meal or about a place to uh, go? Or how do we feel about uh, something that we're choosing about ordering online or at a store? Essentially, gut feelings 
as Damasio and Gerd Geigerenzer and so many others show is far more, if we're looking for a true self, it's our gut feelings that arise that influence our behaviors are far more likely to constitute, to present or provide us with a true self. Certainly, this is a time where I can provide some basic uh, proposals from any Buddhist and cognitive behavioral therapy perspective. It's important that we develop a detached distance born of non-identification from our thoughts. Thoughts are, as we begin to look at the research from Vygotsky and others over the course of the last 100 years are simply internalizations of speech utterances we hear from other people that we regurgitate in our minds to create a feeling of self-control, but they don't actually influence very much of our behaviors. Thoughts are simply cultural artifacts that we internalize and then repeat and then reiterate, but in no way are they uh, pointing to any faculty that is consistent, reliable, uh, coherent. <clears throat> They're very often simply reactive to underlying affect states. So our thinking uh, at best is an attempt, as some clinical psychologists uh, assert, is simply a way to stall before we act out on antisocial impulses and to wait until healthier impulses arise. But thinking, especially self-oriented thought, is not helpful as looking for a sense of that is who I am that is me, that is what is truly my underlying true feelings or perspectives on the world. Buddha famously said, these are the ideas that are unfit for attention that lead to distress. And then he lists them and they go, what was I like in the past? What will become of me in the future? And what is my true nature now? And he says, all of these are lead to nothing but a wilderness and a thicket of thoughts. There's nothing that we find out as a result of these ponderings and that essentially they point us in the direction, a wrong direction because we're trying to define ourselves by thinking. <clears throat> in contemporary clinical psychology, the self-concept or the autobiographical self is nothing but a collection of ideas about our skills, achievements, diagnosis, political views that are all deeply influenced about by anxiety about our capabilities of socializing, but don't really point to any underlying lasting true insight. And again, it's critical to develop a weary relationship of, with any story, diagnosis, pathologizing, view, or anything that would, in language, present a definition of who we are. Furthermore, intellectualization, the reliance on rational thought to try to guide us through life and try to establish a highest sense, is nothing really other than an attempt to hide the emotional drivers and feelings that underline our choices. Because again, as Damasio showed, it's not intellectual or rational faculties of the brain that ultimately make our decisions and choices. It's gut feelings that actually are determinative. So what, if we are going to look finally for a true self, what should we look towards? Where should we point our attention? And here's where I'd like to propose some new insights that I think are very 
um, profound. The feelings in our bodies that are evoked whenever we hold an image in our mind of ourself, or we see a reflection in the mirror, or we encounter what's called our self-representation. When somebody mentions us, when we think about our name, or when we hold an image of ourself in our mind, the feelings that are evoked in our body actually are the most important influential and lasting underlying experiences that have a profound impact on the way we act and the choices we make in the world. People who grow up in what are called secure family systems without environmental failures when they hold an image of themselves in their mind or they see their reflection in a mirror, it's against a backdrop, a milestone of positive somatic feelings. When they look at themselves, they feel good. They feel excited. Their bodies become filled with pride. And because of that, they are willing to develop new skills, try out new opportunities. They have perseverance and resilience, and they are capable of intimacy with partners. Because ultimately, when they think about themselves, and when someone looks at them and mirrors their themselves, it's against a backdrop of positive feelings in their body. Insecure individuals, on the other hand, when they see themselves in the mirror, when they look at a photograph of themselves, when they hear their name, when they hold their image of themselves in their mind, don't feel anything. It's against a backdrop of almost neutral or no positive somatic experience whatsoever. And these individuals are prone to imposter syndrome and a constant imperative to prove oneself. Because if you don't feel anything when you think about yourself, then you constantly need to artificially, through ego structures and compensatory behaviors and calling attention to oneself and constantly proving ourself and constantly going the extra mile, that's how we try to create that feeling of worthiness because it's not there naturally. So for me, doing the work of uh, helping people develop confidence, resilience, and attachment in relationships, one of the core principles is changing the way we feel when we think about ourselves. In so doing, what we're leading towards is emotion integration, expanding the sense of who we are, because now it's no longer a story in the mind of all we've accomplished or what we would like to accomplish or even the memories that we can point to, but it becomes a mindful awareness of what is the underlying backdrop of feelings that are evoked whenever life reflects ourself back at us. How do we feel in our body when the subject of ourselves come up, whether as an image or a name or any other means and that we are confronted with our self-representation. So I'm going to spare my speech so that I can actually lead us in a meditation where we put this in, these insights into actual practice. And at this point, I'm going to have a glass of water and suggest that we meditate. So find a really comfortable seated position. And I hope something in uh, in this tonight's discussion was a benefit. If you'd <clears throat> like to support my Buddhist pastoral work, uh, please uh, consider Venmo Dharma Punks with an XNYC or the PayPal button on the Dharma Punks NYC website. And that's all. That's my pitch. 
for sustaining my work. Everything I do is by donation. And so find a really comfortable seated upright position where you, there's a lot of balance. The more we are in alignment with our head above the shoulders, above the sit bones, and the arms are just uh, hanging comfortably, the more balance, the less we need to exert any muscles to keep ourselves upright. And the less we need to exert muscles, the more comfortable the meditation will be, as well as the more we'll be able to bring our attention mindfully to our internal experience. If we're exerting a lot of stress, keeping ourselves upright, then it naturally follows that our awareness will not want to return to pay attention to what's going on internally because there'll be nothing but a lot of stress and effort and tension in the body. So the better the balance, the better the meditation, the easier it is to bring your awareness back home to your internal experience. And after all, if we're going to find anything that could uh, give us insight into the nature of self, it's not going to come from outside of ourself, is it? It's going to come from within. So just bring your awareness to your internal experience and just allow your awareness to go to whatever sensations are calling out to you. Now, at first, those sensations might be tension. And so what we can do is bring a very compassionate awareness to any region of the body that feels clenched or tight. And just use the breath, breathing into, imagine we could breathe into whatever area of our body needs soothing and softening and releasing. Just breathe through that area. And as you breathe out, just imagine as if all the muscles and tightness could be gently released. Sometimes I feel a tightness right at the base of the neck. Sometimes in the shoulders. And so I just use my awareness to bring the breath or just a compassionate, welcoming, soothing, kind attention to that area and just encourage those muscles to release. If we want to start reducing the amount of self-criticism, the inner tyrant, a good way to diffuse these tendencies is to develop a compassionate internal awareness in your meditation that simply goes around your body and through sheer softened non-judgmental awareness pays attention and uses whatever means at your disposal to relax your body.
And when you're ready, you just find a comfortable anchor in your body to ground your awareness. It could be your breath. Could be the sensations of contact with the chair. It could be a sensation that feels more upfront in your awareness than others. Sensation in the throat or mouth or any ongoing. And from this anchor, allow your attention to move throughout whatever in your internal experience, whether there are feelings, tightness in the belly, tightness in the shoulders, sense of warmth or hollowness in the chest, expressions on the face, or thoughts, inner language, or moods, because the mind feels spacious and open or jumpy or tired. Just become aware of your internal experience and practice what the Buddha noted some 2,500 years ago. Just observe all the constant change, unpredictability, fluidity of internal experience. And see if anything in there really could possibly provide a lasting core sense of identity. When we observe from a non-biased, relaxed perspective, all we see are a bundle of sensations and feelings and words and images and memories simply popping up, seeking our attention, then dissolving and other feelings and sensations arising and passing.
quite often our thoughts are so upfront in our attention that we identify with them and it seems as if they could provide some sense of a coherent self, but the more we observe them from a distance, what we begin to see is just how quickly thoughts jump from one subject to another, to another, to another, changing perspective, like an ongoing inner conversation between completely unstable perspectives, nothing congealing into any kind of identity or concrete. And so now I'd like to transition to another practice. And in this practice, I'd first like us to discern the underlying feelings that are evoked by what could be called our self-representation. So first, just bring to mind an image of yourself as you might look today, or that's not available, an image of yourself as you might have looked previously in life. For those that don't find it easy to conjure an image of our self in our mind, just think your name. And as you do so, just begin to note if there's any somatic shifts that occur in your body from the way you felt previously. When you think of yourself, either as image or word, is it against a backdrop of positive feelings? Is there a sense of ease, fulfilling strength or energy? Do you feel energy moving in your body? Or perhaps it's against a backdrop of no feelings. 
kind of emptiness or lack of energy, lack of vitality, or perhaps for those of us who experience trauma, holding our image in our mind or our, our name might even evoke a sense of physiological tightness, disgust, aversion. So let's just see what is evoked somatically, feelings and moods when we bring our self-representation to mind. And finally, what we can do is we can actually begin to influence these influential feelings that are evoked by our self-representation so that we can actually begin to change our sense of what we could call the felt self. So for this last practice, visualize in your mind someone that you've acted beneficially towards, someone that you've tried to help or shown up for in some capacity. Imagine this person looking at you with an expression of gratitude. A sense of recognition, appreciation. If no one comes to mind, just visualize someone looking at you And if that still doesn't evoke any image, just visualize anything that you feel proud of that you've accomplished. All we're trying to do is evoke a feeling of worthiness associated with some experience or impulse. can help to put a hand on your heart center, right over the vagal nerve. It can help without any undue exertion, just allowing a soft, unforced smile on the face. Just trying to evoke in your body feelings of energy moving, softening, fulfilling rest.
And finally, whenever you feel so disposed, once again evoke in your mind an image of yourself or simply repeat your name while you keep your hand on your heart center, the soft smile, the feeling of energy in your body. And so what we're doing is linking now our self-representation with positive somatic markers in our body. And so, what I'm going to do now is ring the bowl and just allow yourself as much time as you need to rebalance your awareness between the external sensations around you while maintaining mindful awareness of however you feel internally as well. <laughs> 